Acts chapter 17, beginning at verse 22. So Paul, standing in the middle of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in shrines made by men, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all men life and breath and everything. And he made from one every nation of men to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their habitation, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel after him and find him. Yet he is not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the deity is like gold or silver or stone, a representation by the art and the imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all men everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all men by raising him from the dead. The whole time that I was traveling in the Philippines and in Singapore, I was asking the Lord every day almost, what texts should I try to expound on my return to Minneapolis in the first Sundays after I get back? And the upshot of that reflection and that meditation was that I couldn't imagine um, just launching into a new series that had no connection with what I've been thinking about for the past five weeks. And so what I've decided to do is, at least for these first two Sundays that I'm back, today and next Sunday, is to take some texts that I have gotten new insight into and uh, share them with you and try to relate them to our vision and our calling here at Bethlehem. And so I'd like to begin today by focusing your attention and mine on Acts chapter 17, verses 30 to 31. Let's read these two verses again. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all men everywhere to repent because he is fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all men by raising him from the dead. Now you know the circumstance, I think, here. Paul is, is in Athens. He's on this hill called Areopagus. He's surrounded by the intellectuals of his day in Athens. And he is preaching the gospel. He doesn't get very far. But I want us to see how he begins and how he gets to where he's going. He notices on the way to the Areopagus that there's an altar to an unknown God. 
And so he takes this as his in with these religious intellectuals on the Areopagus. Notice verse 23. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Now, another way to say that would be the time for ignorant worship is over. The times of ignorance are over. I have something to say to you that will dispel the ignorance in which you are held bondage here in Athens. Imagine such a thing to all these intellectuals. Then in verses 24 and 25, he explains that the Lord of heaven and earth is absolutely self-sufficient and cannot be served by human beings as though he needed anything. Look at verse 25. God is not served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all men life and breath, and everything. So he exalts the self-sufficiency of God first in his sermon. Next, verse 26, he explains that this self-sufficiency of God that is high above all human service, this self-sufficiency of God is a power that created all things, all nations from one man, and is a power that determines how long nations survive and how wide their borders are extended. You see that in verse 26? He made from one every nation of men to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods. So when the Marcos era in the Philippines ended... It ended right on schedule. That's what that means. He determines allotted periods for nations. And he determines the boundaries of their habitation. If a land is lost, it is lost according to divine decree. If a land is gained... It is gained by divine decree. So he asserts that the self-sufficiency of God rules the nations, their length of endurance and their extent of boundary. God reigns over the nations. Just imagine now the kind of sermon he's preaching to these intellectuals there in Athens. Is this the way you would start a gospel message in Athens? Verse 27. He explains next that the purpose of God in ruling the nations like this is to put them on a search after God. He rules the nations with His sovereign decrees in such a way as to put the nations on a quest, on a search after God. You see that in verse 27? That they should seek God in the hope that they might feel after him and find him. And then in the last part of verse 27, he clarifies this 
purpose of God to set them on a search by saying, and the search is not for a distant deity. You see that? He is not far from you. He's very near for those who seek him. And then he buttresses this by saying, uh, even some of your poets have said this. He's read some Greek poets. He goes on to say, and haven't your poets said that we are God's offspring? And then he really makes pay out of this because he uses their own poet to draw an inconsistency out of their religion. He says, and if your poets have said that we are God's offspring, why do you act as though God were an idol made by human hands? If we are God's offspring that is made by God, how come you treat God as though you're made by Him? Or as though He's made by you? So he uses a poet, a, an element of their culture, to draw out some inconsistencies in their own religious system. In all of this preliminary preaching, he hasn't gotten to the gospel yet, but in all of this, he's cracking, I think, their self-sufficiency. God made you. He made you out of the same stuff He made the barbarians. He rules you to put you on a quest for God outside the world, not in the world, where you have power with your mind. He is as near to those who seek Him as He possibly could be. A little child could find Him. And even your own poets have said, He's no idol. He's above you, not made by you. So he has affirmed the self-sufficiency of God. He's asserted God's sovereignty over the destiny of nations. He's shown that the aim of God in his sovereignty is to set men on a quest after him. He's told us that God draws near to those who seek him. He expresses the folly of thinking that God is an idol. And now he gets to a great division in redemptive history in verse 30. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all men everywhere to repent, including intellectual Athenians. The age of ignorance is over, and the age of repentance has come in Jesus Christ. Now, Here's where I want us to settle down for the rest of our time this morning and think together. What does this mean? That the, the times of ignorance, if you have an NIV, it's all messed up with their paraphrase there. They miss this great phrase, the times of ignorance is over. The times of ignorance. What does that mean? that God overlooked the times of ignorance. It's past, and repentance is now the order of the day for all men. Now, let me tell you the insight that I had never seen before and that I got in preparation for a seminar in Singapore in which I was supposed to uh, try to make a case for Christ being the only way to heaven. The insight that I've never seen before is that the phrase, the times of ignorance, in verse 30 of Acts 17, is parallel 
in meaning to the time during which God kept secret the mystery of Christ in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 6. And I'm going to invite you to turn there with me. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 6, or verses 4 through 6, we'll look at. There are three places, at least, in the epistles of Paul where he refers to the mystery of Christ. This is the most plain of all those three places, and so I want to read these three verses with you. Ephesians 3, 4, 5, and 6. 3, verses 4, 5, and 6. And I want to ask, what is the mystery of Christ? When was it kept secret, and how is it now revealed? Let's start at verse 4, Ephesians 3. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Now, let's just stop there before we read on and notice. The mystery of Christ has not been revealed before. It has been kept secret. There have been ages or generations in which God has not revealed something. And I think that's what Paul means in Acts 17.30 by the times of ignorance. Let's read on. Here Paul in verse 6, I think, he defines the mystery. That is, how the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus, through the gospel. Now, let's step back and try to define from that verse what the, the mystery of Christ is. What is it? Well, number one, there are two elements to it, I think. Let me take them one at a time. The mystery of Christ is the news that the Gentile nations, the non-Jews out there, are full fellow heirs of the promise part of the same body with believing Jews and heirs of the promise. So the mystery is that Jews shouldn't think that they have a corner on the kingdom. Jews shouldn't believe that just because they're receiving their Messiah, Jesus Christ, the church is going to be a Jewish church. The mystery is Gentiles, nations, most of us right here in this room are full fellow members with believing Jews in the kingdom, in the people of God, in the body of Christ. Now, the second element of the mystery is that all of this access that the Gentiles have won is through the gospel. Do you see that at the end of verse 6? In Jesus Christ, through the gospel. That's going to be very important. Because what that signified to me is that now that Jesus Christ has come and the time of ignorance of the mystery of Christ is over, from now on, Jesus Christ has the unique authority and honor of being the one through whom everyone enters the kingdom.
Notice, Paul says in verse 5 that this is a mystery. But mystery in Paul's language doesn't mean paradox or something confusing. That's the way we use it. Something you can't understand. That's not what Paul means by it. Paul is saying very plainly, it's being revealed. What mystery means is that it was not made known for generations. Now it is being made known. He says the same thing in Colossians 1.26. The mystery was hidden for generations. The same thing in Romans 16.25. The mystery was kept secret for long ages. So my conclusion, by putting Acts 17.30 and Ephesians 3. 6 and Colossians 1.26 and Romans 16.25 together is to conclude that the times of ignorance in verse 30 of Acts 17 are times of ignorance because God did not reveal the mystery of Christ in those days. Now, what difference does that make? What do we learn if that's true? What do we learn for Bethlehem and for our lives and from this text? Two things. First, we learn that the times of ignorance are part of God's plan for world history. The times of ignorance are part of God's plan for world history. God is not a helpless victim of the ignorance of men. Ephesians 3, Colossians 1, Romans 16 make it very plain. Each of them say, God kept secret the mystery of Christ for ages. He willed not to reveal the mystery of Christ for many generations. He looked down on a rebellious creation And he did not come forth with judgment, and he did not come forth with revelation. He left them in their ignorance, and they are called the times of ignorance. I think that's implied right here in Acts 17.30. What do you think it means when it says, God overlooked the times of ignorance? Overlooked. What does overlook mean? That English word has a connotation that I don't think Paul intends. And the connotation in English is indulge or forgive. You say, well, I'll just overlook that this time to your children. Then you mean you're not going to punish them for it. You will just let it go. That's not what this means. And there are a couple of reasons that we know that's not what this means. The first is that Paul teaches in Romans 2.12, those who sin without the law will perish without the law. In other words, nobody should say, well, if there are people in the world who don't have the Bible who've never heard the law of Moses and who've never heard about Jesus Christ, then their sins have to be tolerated. They have to be forgiven. They have to be overlooked in that sense. 
And Paul says something very different. He said, those who sin without the law will perish without the law. Why? How is that just? Well, Romans 1 says that everybody in the world has enough revelation to hold them accountable, to glorify and thank God, but instead they hold down the truth in unrighteousness. Nobody will be judged according to knowledge that they do not have. Therein lies the justice of the judge. But everybody will be judged for failing to own up to the knowledge that they do have, which all men, in fact, do fail in. And so you can't say overlooked here means tolerate or forgive or indulge because Paul says so plainly, those who sin without the law in the days of ignorance will perish without the law. But there's a more immediate reason why I don't think the word overlook means indulge or tolerate or forgive. And that comes from the closest parallel to this verse in the book of Acts, namely chapter 14, verse 16. Why don't you look at it with me just so that you can test whether you think, as I do, that this verse is the best interpretation of the overlooking of the times of ignorance in Acts 17.30. Paul is speaking to the unbelievers at Lystra back in chapter 14, verse 16, and he says in verse 16, In past generations, God allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Now, I think that is simply a paraphrase of God overlooked the times of ignorance. What does overlook mean then? I think it means look aside from and ignore and not come forth with judgment or revelation. Just glance over it and let the nations go their own way. So I infer from the times of ignorance and from its correlation with the mystery of Christ that they are part of God's sovereign plan in world history. Not that God instilled ignorance into innocent people, but that he withheld revelation from guilty people. You catch that difference? This is very important. Not that God instilled ignorance into innocent people, but that he withheld revelation from guilty people, just as long as his wisdom ordained. If you seek for explanations in Scripture as to the duration of the times of ignorance, why didn't he send Christ a thousand years earlier, two thousand years earlier. Why two thousand years in which he let the nations go their own way since the call of Abraham? The closest thing you get to an answer is Genesis fifteen sixteen. The iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Galatians 4.4, in the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son. Woe to us if we call into question 
the wisdom of God's sovereign decrees in the way he runs the nations. The second thing we learn from comparing the times of ignorance with the withholding of the mystery of Christ is this. The times of ignorance are over. And from now on, Jesus Christ is the necessary object of saving faith. The times of ignorance are over with the coming of Jesus. And since he has come, he himself is the necessary object of saving faith. You remember Paul said in Ephesians 3, 6, that the mystery now being revealed is a mystery that people become partakers of in Jesus Christ through the gospel. Gentiles are welcomed into the body of Christ now, since Christ, only through the gospel. This was my answer in my seminar that I gave in Singapore to the question, is Christ the only way to heaven? Is belief in Him the only way? And I answered, yes, on the basis of my study. What God kept secret for generations has now been revealed, and the revelation of the mystery is through the gospel. Before the coming of Christ, people were not saved merely through Christ. They'd never heard of Christ. They were saved by casting themselves on the mercy of God. And they looked for the warrant of that mercy to the mighty deeds of God. For example, in the Exodus, they looked to the sacrifices of the Lamb, foreshadowing something greater. And they looked to the promises of Isaiah 53 and the like, where a great Redeemer would one day come. But they knew not Jesus Christ. And yet they were saved. And therefore, many evangelicals today will say, can't that be true today? That people in their own religions can find their way to heaven if they're sincere. And I believe the answer of Scripture is a resounding no. Because the mystery of Jesus Christ is that now a new thing has happened. The Son of God has come. And now the Gentiles, the nations are included through the gospel. We can see the same thing right here in Acts 17, 30 and 31. Paul says that the times of ignorance were overlooked, were passed by, neglected. But now God commands all men everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all men by raising him from the dead. Now just think for a moment about this. He has given warrant and assurance and certification of the Lordship of Christ by His resurrection. And that is the assurance that men in all nations should have so that they can flee to the judge for mercy rather than rebel against Him and be judged. But how will they flee to the judge for mercy whom they have not heard? You see, Paul poses that very question in Romans 10. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. But how are men to call upon Him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe Him whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without a preacher? And how are they to preach unless they be sent? So you put this, Romans 10, together with Acts 17.30, 
And I come up with the conclusion that men must repent. Men must call upon the judge for mercy in order to be saved. Since the coming of Jesus Christ, Christ himself has been given the honor, the tribute, and the status of being the one through whom all saving faith would be exercised in God. He is the sum, the yes, the amen, and the completion of all God's promises so that there is no end run around Christ today into the kingdom of heaven. Well, I close by asking practically what this means for us here at Bethlehem. The answer is that it tells us what kind of day we live in. Where do you learn about the meaning of the day in which you live? Or do you ask that question? What does today mean? What does the 20th century mean? What do the 13 years to the end of this millennium mean? What do they mean? Do you, do you learn that from the TV news or from the Tribune or from Time or Newsweek or USA Today? These cultural instruments that have very much in them that we need to know but cannot tell us the most important thing we need to know. Namely, what does our day mean? Only one person can tell you that. God. Because God rules the day in which He lived. His plans are coming to pass. He designs and governs this day. He alone can interpret the meaning of this day. What is the meaning of our day? The period of time in which we live. And I get an answer from... Acts chapter 17, verse 30 and 31, and it has three parts. Number one, it is a day of repentance and salvation. Paul faced the Athenians. He faces us in Minneapolis. He faces every unreached people. And he says, the meaning of your day is that the times of ignorance are over. The day of repentance is at hand. And he commands all men everywhere to repent so the number one meaning of our day is that it is a day in which the days of ignorance are over. Something new is in the offing. God is not doing the same thing He was doing before Jesus Christ came into the world. It is a day of repentance and a day of salvation. Which leads us to the second thing. It is a day of missions and evangelism. The text says that the warrant of fleeing from the wrath to come is that Jesus has been raised from the dead. And there's only one way people can hear that warrant, and that is through the going of missionaries. So the days of ignorance are over, and the days of a missionless people of God are over. Now, those of you, of you who are familiar with... Uh, Ralph Winters and Don Richardson's thinking on this matter. We need to think real hard here because I am stressing something that they don't stress. If the Great Commission was given in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, as they say, then Israel did not obey it, but not only that, this is what Paul stresses, 
God did not grant them to obey it. He let the nations go their own way. Acts 14.16 He ordained the times of ignorance. He hid the mystery of Christ for ages. And this is so important for us to see because it says that when Jesus Christ came into the world, He split history in half. Something of immense and magnificent proportions happened with the coming of Jesus. We know the meaning of our day today. The meaning of our day is that Jesus Christ has ended the times of ignorance. God has entered into the world in His Son and says, Repent to every single human being in the world. And therefore, there is a new mission thrust. God is not doing the same thing today that He was with Israel. He's doing a new thing with His church. Wait! And when power has come upon you from on high, you will be witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. He never did that for Israel. God has ordained that there be power in the church for a new thrust of missions that will reach the hidden peoples of the world. And so I want to assert that the meaning of our day is uniquely a missionary day. It is uniquely an evangelism day. Unlike the days of Israel before the coming of the Son of Man, who is now the focus and object of all saving faith, which leads us to the last observation. The day we live in is a day of love and a day of sending. It's a day of love to your neighbor and your family and your business colleague. Enough love to tell them about the greatness of Jesus Christ and that they shouldn't be ignorant anymore. And it's a day of sending and a new partnership between the sent and the senders at Bethlehem Baptist Church. I suppose the most stunning and encouraging and shocking news that I received in Singapore from this church was in a white envelope that Carol sent me, written in longhand by Peter Nelson, to the effect that while I was gone... Tom Steller called a meeting. And the invitation said, if, get the wording right here, I just clarified it with Peter between the services, if you have a settled conviction that you will be engaged full-time in cross-cultural mission, and you're a member of this church, come to this meeting. And 44 people came to that meeting. And another eight said they wished they could have been there. And all of them have the intention of doing that within the next five to six years. Now, I don't know if that has hit home to you what that means for us. It is a glorious prospect and evidence of the working of God. And it is a joyful and heavy burden upon those whom God calls to stay. And let me close by exalting the dignity of the sent and the sender. And I want to make it clear.
to do, those of you and me who will be staying, that you have a dignity of immense importance. And here it is. The sent are given dignity in this word. How shall they hear without a preacher? Therein lies the dignity of the sent. And the dignity of the sender is given in this word. How shall they preach unless they be sent? And so we live in a day now for Bethlehem in which a new era of partnership and camaraderie between the sent and the sender must come into being. It's a day of repentance and salvation. It's a day of missions and evangelism. And it's a day of love and sending and partnership between the sent and the sender. Because Jesus Christ has appointed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed. And He has given assurance of this to all men by raising Him from the dead. It's a day of salvation and a day of repentance. And I want us to close by singing an affirmation that we live in a day of salvation and repentance and mission. It's number 667. Let's sing verses 1 and 4. Jesus saves. Shall we stand as we sing verses 1 and 4 of 667? Lord, break forth with your salvation in our world. In Minneapolis, in Minnesota, in the Baptist General Conference, across our land to all the unreached peoples of the world, and in our church, O oh God, awaken us to be sent, to be senders, to be realistically austere and warlike in our mentality and in our lifestyle. Glorify your name and grant us the greatest privilege in the world of seeing souls brought into the kingdom with Jesus Christ forever and ever. And all the people said, Amen.